So we're finishing up Genesis today, Genesis chapter 50. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. So verse 1 of chapter 50 happens hard on the heels of the end of chapter 49 when Jacob gathered his sons around him to bless them and speak prophecy over them. That chapter ended with verse 33. So Jacob finished commanding his sons, drew his feet into the bed, breathed his last, and was gathered to his people. And it was then, after that, that Joseph fell on his father's face, wept over him, and kissed him. Jacob must have been some kind of man to have the vice region of Egypt so affected by his death. Because Joseph couldn't have expected him to live much longer. He was 147 years old. And unlike Moses, who was still able to get around well and full of energy when the Lord gathered him to his people, Jacob was not only old, but he was blind and seemingly even bedridden. But this old man's death left a hole in the heart of Joseph. And what we're told in verse 3 also speaks to the kind of man that Jacob was. Verse 3, when the 40 days to do this were fulfilled, because in this manner the days of embalming are fulfilled, and the Egyptians wept for him for 70 days. So the life of Jacob not only positively impacted Joseph, but also the entire nation of Egypt as well. They wouldn't have done this. They wouldn't have held a countrywide time of mourning just because this man was the father of Joseph. They mourned the loss of Jacob. Why? What was it that this old man did? Remember, he was an abomination to the Egyptians because he was a keeper of flocks. So what was it that made him so special that they would mourn 70 days for him? That will be fleshed out in a little bit after we get past the funeral possession that's held in his honor. But first, let's get to that funeral possession, procession, verses 4 through 10. Then the days of weeping for him were past, and Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your sight, please speak to the ears of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, Behold, I'm about to die in my grave which I dug for myself in the land of Canaan. There you shall bury me. So now, please let me go up and bury my father, and then I will return. And Pharaoh said, Go up and bury your father as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father, and with him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of the household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, and all the household of Joseph and his brothers and their father's household. They left only their little ones and their flocks and their herds in the land of Goshen. There were also, verse 9, went up with them both chariots and horsemen. And it was a very immense camp. And they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan. And they lamented there with a great, a very great and immense lamentation. And he observed seven days of mourning for his father. And in these verses, something of Joseph is demonstrated to us. You see, we need to keep in mind that Pharaoh wasn't just the king of Egypt. He, in that culture, was considered the embodiment of a living God. And for this reason, there was very strict protocol surrounding how us mere mortals 
dealt with him and addressed him, always through his household advisors. But also remember that Joseph is second in command over the entirety of Egypt. Nothing and no one outside of Pharaoh himself did anything without the consent of Joseph. And it had been this way for 20 plus years. For 20 years, he led this country. 20 years, he faithfully led this country. He had led them through seven years of plenty, and then the seven years of the worst of droughts and famines, and then a dozen or more so years of rebuilding after that famine ended. And when his father died, even after all of that, all those years of being in power, he still went to Pharaoh and asked permission to go and fulfill a vow that he had made to his father. And in all reality, he didn't even actually go to Pharaoh. He went to his household manager of Pharaoh. And remember, this is the same man, Joseph, all those years ago who had no issues breaking the protocol how to deal with Pharaoh. All those years ago when he first gave insight into the dreams of Pharaoh and then told him, this is what you should do because of the coming famine. And there Joseph proved that he was not a respecter of men and he still was not a respecter of men. But here, in the manner that he approaches Pharaoh, this proves something about Joseph. He knew who he was. But more important than that, he knew whose he was. Joseph, he would have had more rank, more pull than any and all the people in the house of Pharaoh. And yet we're told that he didn't think of himself so highly that he could circumvent protocol, use his position and power, and just waltz into the palace, bypassing all those menial people, the ones that were beneath him, and go straight in to see Pharaoh. Could he have? You bet he could have. But how Joseph approaches Pharaoh speaks to something that is part of the DNA of Joseph. You see, for all intents and purposes, Joseph was the man. But Joseph never allowed himself to think of himself as being the man. He knew something about himself that mattered the most in who he was. He knew that he was a man who was under subjection. More important than knowing who he was, he knew whose he was. He knew that in all reality, he was still a slave to a master, not an Egyptian, although we are never told that he actually is ever set free from Potiphar. But this, the master that he knew that he was a slave to was an eternal master. And he realized that all that he had, all that he was, was only because of that thing that we're told four times of back in chapter 39. Yahweh was with Joseph. God was with him. We don't think very much of that statement. We don't even understand the depth of that simple statement. Because we in our Christianity will talk about being of the Lord, 
And in being awestruck at the fact that God is with us, we will use his scripture as a dagger to justify our sin. Or we'll banter back and forth with each other, discussing, fencing with each other about being of the Lord and in the Lord, attempting to prove how smart we are about the Bible, about the truths of God, smarter than that other guy who's getting those secondary things wrong. All the while, missing missing the depth of the only reason that we can understand any part of the Bible. Yahweh is with you. God is with me. And then we think, that means that God is okay with whatever I decide to give him. even though I won't obey his commands. We don't understand that we are sin. Not that we sin. We are sin. And for this reason, and this reason alone, he, God, should never be with us. Doesn't that turn that phrase on its head? This is how Joseph saw Yahweh being with him. What he understood that to actually mean in his life. He knew, he understood that God should not be with him. But he was. And the only reason, and he knew that the only reason that he could know God, the only reason that he was shown favor, he knew that everything that transpired in his life was all of God, for God, through God. Those easy and happy things, even the hard things, but easy or unpleasant, those weren't the important parts of Joseph's life. The events unfolding around him at the moment, they were the highlights of his life. God was with him. And that was. And we can see this to be true in how he's going to respond to his brothers in just a few verses. And because of this, he knew that he was a slave and that he was required to be at his beck and call of his master. And instead of begrudgingly doing that, he was happy to do that. Because he knew what his only hope in life and death was. Which is why his vow to his father was such importance to him. And because he saw of his, his exalted position of slave to God, knowing that God was with him, he lived in integrity his whole life. And for that reason, the vow that he made to his father mattered to him. And because it mattered to him, that vow was important to Pharaoh as well. Because Joseph lived his life in subjection, his earthly master Pharaoh had been blessed by him. And that that vow was important to Joseph, that vow then became important to Pharaoh. How important? Well, he not only granted the request to go, but he sent a full diplomatic and military honor guard to go along with Joseph. 
And how large was this funeral party? Verse 11. Now the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning at the threshing floor of Atad, and they said, This is an immense mourning for the Egyptians. Therefore it was named Abel Mizraim, which is beyond the Jordan. So the number of Egyptians, in comparison to the numbers of Hebrews, was so large that the locals in Canaan thought that the person who was being buried had to be Egyptian. And are we then to infer that the Hebrews had ditched their Hebrewness for the snazzy clothes, the clothes of the Egyptians, that they had shaved their beards and their heads and now looked like them? And also there's this other problem that we walk right past in verses 1 and 2. Joseph had the Egyptians embalmed Jacob. You see, the, the embalming process the Egyptians did was done ritualistically. And not just ritualistically, but religiously. The embalming practices that were perfected in Egypt were all done to the false god Animus, the god of embalming. And the embalmers of Egypt, they were all the priests of this false god. And this, the embalming process was all done as an act of worship to this false god of Egypt. So what's going on here? Did Joseph fall into the heresy of trying to synchronize the worship of the one and true living God with false gods? Had he lived in Egypt so long that he had been tainted by their culture and he fell into that trap? Nope. And we can know that this is true because when Jacob died and Joseph was having his body prepared for the trek north, we're told in verse 2 that Joseph commanded his physicians to embalm his dear old dad. And here, we're shown a great example of how a man who knows that he is a slave to the true and living God, how he will live in the world but not be of the world. You see, Joseph had lived most of his entire adult life in that polytheistic country, surrounded by people who had images of their gods, who worshipped, had celebrations and customs all built around those gods. And he was never swayed to worship them. Nor was he ever threatened by them either. And he showed humility in how he lived and faith in his God. He understood that the Egyptians were not to be converted by him. That if they came to know the Lord, that they would do so only because God made that a reality. That doesn't mean that he didn't witness with his life. He had to have. As he lived his life, not sacrificing to the false gods, not worshiping them, he would have had to tell them why he would not. But because he was secure in knowing who his only hope in life and death was, he didn't have to offend where offense wasn't necessary. And we would do well to learn this truth as well. Yes, tell people why you live the way that you do. Yes, tell them the absolute truth that there is a God in heaven that they have com uh, committed sin against and will face the just punishment of his eternal wrath for that. We're commanded in Ephesians 5.11 not to participate in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead even expose them. 
Yes, we're supposed to hate that which God hates. But in the end, don't expect the unsaved to act like the saved. Of course they're going to sin. Blatantly, outwardly, illogically. It's who they are. It's who we were outside of Christ. And unless and until Christ redeems them, they can't see God as God. And Joseph knew that just like him, that they were slaves, like all humanity, which includes us. And if we are redeemed, then we are slaves of Christ, 1 Peter 2.16. But before we are slaves to Christ, before that, we were like the rest of the world, a slave to sin, to our former father, Satan, John chapter 8, verse 34. And Joseph knew that in, in order to fulfill his vow to his dad, to take that body on that journey up north to the cave that he had vowed to take him to, he had to have that body preserved. Because a trip like that for a man in his position didn't just happen. He couldn't just pack up and leave the next day, put things on hold, call into work, take a personal day off. And the trip itself would take time to get there. So as we're told in verse 2, Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Joseph didn't send for the false god professional embalmers. He commanded his physicians to prepare the body for transport. And that false god embalming process of the Egyptians, that took 70 days. And since Joseph had his physicians do it, this then explains the meaning behind verse 3. But only Pharaoh could have mandated a national time of mourning. And the 70 days that are, are mandated correspond with the 70 days that it usually normally took to complete that false god worshiping process of their embalming. which must be why Joseph just waited to reach out to Pharaoh until the 70 days was up. Which then brings us to verses 12 through 14. Thus his sons did for him as he had commanded them. And indeed his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field of Machpelah before Mamre, which Abraham had bought along with the field for his possessions as a burial site from Ephraim the Hittite. And after he buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt, he and his brothers, and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. So remember that what we're being told of happening on this day happens 17 years after the children of Israel come to live in Egypt. It happens 37 years after Joseph is sold into slavery. So almost four decades, 40 years have passed since then. So with this in mind, we're given verses 15 through 18. Then Joseph's brothers saw that their dad was dead, and they said, What if Joseph bears a grudge against us and returns back to us all the evil which we dealt against him? So they sent a message to Joseph saying, uh, Hey, your father commanded before he died, saying, Thus say to Joseph, Please forgive, I beg you, the transgressions of your brothers and their sin, for they dealt evil against you. So now, please forgive the transgressions of the slaves of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. And remember, 
The man that they're speaking to is the same man who fell down and wept when his father died. The same man who wept on the shoulder of Benjamin when they were first reunited. Who wept on their shoulders when they were reunited. And promised to take care of them and their little ones back in chapter 45. He's the same man who's been watching over them, taking care of them, directing them, keeping them Hebrew. But now the dad is dead and buried. Once they got back into Egypt, the void of their father not being there and seeming to be running interference between them and the wrath of Joseph wasn't there anymore, which is what brought about verses 16 and 17. And what, pray tell, was it that brought about this fear within them? What actions could have made them fear like this? It was their actions. They were the reason that they feared. And this too is a lesson in humanity. Not only are all humans a slave either to sin or to the Lord, but we will, either case, we will project our sins onto others. And we will prove by that who we're actually trusting in as our only hope in life and death. Have you ever run across that person who's always thinking, always telling you, you just can't trust people? That person who's always thinking, always telling you, they're out to get me. Those people are lying about me. They're always wanting to take advantage of me. Those people are just projecting themselves for you to see. They're telling you exactly what they are like inside, what they actually feel deep inside. And the same is true for that person who doesn't, will not, does not trust in the Lord with all of their heart, not leaning on their own understanding, who will not acknowledge him in all their ways, who is constantly fearful, constantly trying to work all things together for their own good. They fear because their God is small and infinite. And they don't know who their only hope in life and death is. These brothers, they knew that if the shoe was on the other foot, if they had been sold into slavery, hated for no reasons, they knew that they would not forgive. They would not forget, and they would hold a grudge, and they would exact their pound of flesh from that person that had treated them that way. But how did Joseph react to this realization? That this is how his brothers actually saw him. This is how they viewed their relationship with him. It broke his heart. He wept. In verses 16 and 17, they're, they're just merely a message that was sent by the brothers. But what happens beginning in verse 18, that's an, a person-to-person -person contact that happens. Then his brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your slaves. So after sending that message that contained a lie concerning their father, after trying to manipulate Joseph by using his love for his dead father in their favor, the brothers then decide, probably the best thing that we can do is to go directly before Joseph and place ourselves at his mercy. And that's what happens in verse 18. 
They come and they bow down. And how does Joseph react? Does he gloat over them? Does he remind them, hey, do you remember all those years ago I told you that dream? I told you that you were going to come and bow down to me. No. Joseph continues to prove that he knew whose he was and what his only hope in life and death is. Verse 19, But Joseph said to them, Don't be afraid, for am I in God's place? He does what he's done all along. He tells his brothers, Stop looking at man. Trust in God. Stop trusting in men. Trust in your own hope in life and death, which is the, the thrust of verses 20 and 21. He says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for in order to do what has happened on this day, to keep many people alive. So now, don't be afraid. I provide for you and your little ones. And he comforted them and spoke to their heart. What he said to them there is this. Look, you hated me without a cause. You inflicted terror and torture on me. You sold me into slavery. You did this. But in all reality, where it really matters the most is that it was God who did this. He was using these things to make me more into the image. It was God who was refining me, disciplining me by your sin. And the years of loneliness and subjection. And it's God who is using me for your good and for his glory. And I'm good with this. Me, as the one who is over you. But you should be looking to God who is over me and you. And he's working all things together for the good of those that love him and are called according to his purpose. And this is how he spoke to their heart. And how can I be so sure this is what he said? This is what he did. Because this is what he's done all along through his life. This is what he said to them initially when he revealed himself to them. And this is how he's acted toward them ever since then. And then this then brings us to the last part of this chapter. The final chapter of the book of Genesis verses 22 through 26. Now Joseph stayed in Egypt, he and his father's household, and Joseph lived 110 years. And Joseph saw the third generation of Ephraim's sons, also the sons of Maker, the son of Manasseh, who were born on Joseph's knees. And Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will surely take care of you and bring you up from this land to the land which he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely take care of you, and you shall carry my bones up from here. So Joseph died at the age of 110 years, and, 110 years, and they embalmed him in Egypt. So just by reading this, the question that we should ask ourselves is, did his older brothers outlive him? I mean, his father lived 147 years old. That's super old. But, I mean, but he died at 110. That's pretty old. Longer than the average lifespan at that time. But does 
Verse 24 actually proved that Joseph spoke to his older brothers and gave them the command that he, at 110 years, told them who had been at least 120 or more years old to remember the promise of God. Not necessarily, because the word that's used there is brother is used not just to speak of brothers being from the same father in a single generation, but also brothers from a single father in multiple generations. It's how it's used in Genesis 9.25, when Noah cursed on his son Canaan. There he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, he shall be to his brothers. And what he was doing, Noah was doing there, is he was specifically speaking of the sons of Canaan, and the sons of Shem and Joseph, not them specifically. But again, this is the last chapter of the book of Genesis. Why, why does this chapter end this way? Why does this book end this way? Why does it end with Joseph telling his family, I'm going to die, but God will take care of you? Why? Because we're supposed to know what our only hope in life and death is. Because God made a covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And because of this, because God is a covenant-making, covenant-keeping God, that we can rest assured that what he has promised will happen. That he is working all things together for the good, for those that love him. Here, now, but not just here and now but for all eternity. And Joseph was so confident of this fact that he says, I want you to promise that when God takes you up from here, back to the promised land, that you take me with you. And 300 plus years later, just as God had commanded, the brothers of Joseph, the sons of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob would leave Egypt for good. And when that happened, Moses didn't forget that promise that was made to Joseph. Exodus 13, 19. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for he made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely take, you, take care of you, and you shall bring up my bones from here with you. And then for the ne next 40 plus years, Joseph would travel with the children of Israel as they're wandering in the wilderness until he's finally laid to rest by Joshua, as told to us in Joshua 24, verse 32. Now they buried the bones of Joseph, which the sons of Israel brought up from Egypt, at Shechem, in the portion of the field that Jacob had bought from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, for 100 kishtah, and they became the inheritance of Joseph's sons. And coincidentally, that was also the year that Joshua died, at 110 years. And this is how the first book of the Bible ends. Two funerals. Why? Why didn't Joseph command that his body be placed in the same tomb with his father and grandfather and great-grandfather? He could have done that. And the answer to that is the answer to that catechism question. What is our only hope in life and death? You remember the answer? That we are not our own, 
but belong body and soul, both in life and death, to God and our Savior Jesus Christ, which is nothing more than Romans 14, 7 and 8 restated. Romans 14, 7 and 8. For not one of us lives for himself, and not one of, his, one of us dies for himself. For if we live, and again, this is an important thing. That word, there's a word I'm going to say here that is important. If we live, we live for the Lord, not to the Lord. We live for the Lord. And if we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. And since this is truth, we now can understand why the Egyptians act as the way that they did, why they gave such respect to Joseph, to Jacob, because Romans 8.28 tells us, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for the good for those who are called according to his purpose. And this then answers why Joseph had his body prepared to be moved after he died, because he understood 2 Timothy 1 verse 12, which tells us, I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard that which I've entrusted to him until that day. And again, ask yourself this, what have you entrusted to the Lord? Is it here? Your car? Your house? What is it that you've entrusted to the Lord? Joseph understood a truth that Jesus spoke of. In Mark chapter 12, verses 26 and 27, Jesus said, But regarding the fact that the dead are raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the burning bush, how God spoke to them, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob? He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. And you are greatly mistaken. Joseph knew that God was his only hope here in life, and he, and which is why he lived and acted the way that he did. But more important than that, he also knew that it was this same master who was his only hope in death as well. God. That's what this chapter is about. He ends this book, this chapter and this book, Forcing us to consider our end. And at, forcing us to consider what is our only hope in life and death. God. This is how he begins this love letter to the redeemed, to those that are called according to his purpose. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God. And if you get that first verse correct, you will get the rest of the book correct. But if you get it wrong, if when you read Genesis 1-1, you skip over God, focus on in the beginning, or created the heavens and the earth, if you skip over the reason that there's a beginning, a reason that there's a heaven and an earth, and try to figure out when was the beginning? Is the earth actually only 6,000 years old, or does it just look like it's really old? If you, try, if you skip over God and you try and figure out, how did he create the heavens and the earth? Is, is the account of creation weak? Can it be scientifically defended or not? 
Is creation plausible, defendable against science? If when you read Genesis 1-1, you skip over God, then you have missed the point of Genesis 1-1, and you will get the, myth, the, the meaning of the rest of this book wrong. Because if you get Genesis 1-1 wrong, wrong, you get God wrong. If you decide that in the beginning God created the heavens and the universe, that this verse is given to us in order that we can theorize about time, or decide how and if God created the heavens and the universe, if you look at either one of those things that God did as more important, of more value in thinking through, if they are the things that captivate your mind and your imagination, You haven't seen God. And you have the wrong focus. And you may not even be redeemed. And you will not wonder at God, the God who is before the beginning, at God that created all that is. And that includes the farthest reaches of the galaxy all the way down to the specks of dust floating in the air. And he not only created all of that, but he is sovereign over all of it. That's what the meaning of those Romans 8 verses are. He is sovereign over all aspects of his creation, and he is working all of them for our good, for those that love him and are called according to his purpose. If you get Genesis 1-1 wrong, God will be nothing more than an add-on to your life. He will be the means that you can call yourself Christian. But in all reality, your life will be marked by you and not by him. And if that's the case, you will get the gospel wrong. You will think that the gospel is about man. You will, if you ever do, you will share the gospel for the sake of man, for the benefit of man, to spare man from God but it's when you get Genesis 1-1 right, when you see the majesty, when you see the holiness of God, when you know that your only life or your only hope in life and death is Him, it's then, it's then that you will understand the majesty and the wonder that God is with you. And it is only then that you'll understand why Christ is our only hope in life and death. Both of these men died, but both of them live. And unless Christ returns, you're going to die too. And it may happen today. In fact, as you sit here, your body is suffering the decay of death as you slowly die. And this is just proof that you're still a sinner in need of a Savior. But why? Why death? Because... If God is so wonderful, so majestic, so amazing, then why did he create things to die? Doesn't he care? If he's love, 
then why would he create the possibility of death? Did he create the possibility of death? He did. And he did this in order that he would receive the greatest amount of glory possible. Saints, when God created you, and this is important, you need to think this through. When he created you in his image, part of that meaning behind that is that you can think, that you can reason. He gave us the greatest supercomputer ever in our minds. And he, God, he is now giving you a new heart and the ability to know him if you are the redeemed. And he, admit, he admits, he expects that you are going to know things, that you're going to use that supercomputer to actually get to know things. He expects that you will know what your only hope in life and death is. And to do this, we must, we have to, We have to force ourselves outside of ourselves and think about God. Do you understand God existed from eternity to eternity? That you can't say eternity past to eternity present or eternity future. There is no past in eternity. There is no future in eternity. There is only the eternal now, which is why God is the eternal I am. And God created time. And when he created time, he created the opportunity for death. The possibility of death. And he did so for one specific reason. That he would receive glory. He did this in order that his attributes of love, faithfulness, omniscience, that they would be demonstrated, known, not only to his creation, but to those eternal beings in the eternal realm that couldn't know these things about God outside of creation, outside of time. And he didn't create time for man. And he created man for the same reason that he created time. For his glory. And he created man with the need to obey, to live. Man, the flesh part of man, was not created eternal. He was created with the ability to die, which is why when God created the garden that Eden is part of, that man was placed in charge of, why there are two specific trees in the middle of that garden, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, And Adam, that man, was commanded, eat of one and live. And commanded of the other, do not eat of the other. And it's not unfair that these trees were placed there. That that forbidden tree was created. Or even that the serpent was allowed to interact with man. That is not unfair. And it's not unfair for one reason only. God. You see, Adam was able to commune with God in the garden there. And God is love, and love demands a choice. And as long as Adam remained in the love of God, he was alive, able to eat of the tree of life. And the trees, both of them, they were created to bring glory to God through the lives of Adam and Eve. When Adam and Eve lived in the garden, 
and enjoyed the loving communion with God through their obedience, they glorified God. And the angels in heaven praised the name of God as they beheld the wonder and the majesty of his creation, beheld his holiness in the indwelling of his spirit in a created being, beheld his faithfulness to his creation. And they praised the love of God as Adam and Eve faithfully, lovingly walked with God. And when Adam and Eve sinned by loving themselves more than God, then Adam and Eve glorified God through the demonstration of his righteous judgment on them the moment that they sinned and died. And then, and then, the greatest demonstration of all the attributes of God, all the attributes that are him, it was then able to be most fully demonstrated Adam had to be cast out of that garden, never allowed to eat of that tree of life ever again. Adam had to physically die because Adam had already died spiritually. In that moment that sin entered into him, he had killed himself to God. He had separated himself from his maker. This is the truth of Romans 5.12. Just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. And sin allowed God to be glorified through the attribute of his justice to be fully demonstrated. It allowed the attribute of his wrath to be fully demonstrated as he poured out both of them fully with extreme prejudice on sinners. And the angels in heaven rejoiced to see him do this. They glorified God for his wrath for his justice, because he had created time, because he had created the heavens and the universe, because he had created man and breathed his spirit into him. In the beginning, God. But as as Paul Harvey used to say, now for the rest of the story. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And He was in the beginning with God. And all things came into being through Him. And apart from Him, nothing came into being. And He has come into being. In Him was life. And the life was the light of men. And the light shone in the darkness, and the darkness did not overtake it. Saints, if we get Genesis 1-1 wrong, if we get God wrong there, then we will get John 1 wrong as well. We will think that the covenants of God, all of them, are all man-centered, are, are all man-centered, are all dependent on us. You do this, and then God will do that. We will think that we are our only hope in life and death. That it's us We will think that we are keeping ourselves in the love of God. And if we think this way, we're doomed. Because we can't do that. We can't be good. Only God is good. Mark 10, 18. But God. We are commanded to keep ourselves in the love of God. 
And we don't have to worry about keeping ourselves in the love of God because of this. Hebrews 13, 20 and 21. Now the God of peace who brought up from the the dead the great shepherd of the blood through the blood of the eternal covenant, our Lord Jesus equipped you in every good thing to do his will by doing in us what is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. God, that Trinitarian God, made a covenant within himself before creation. He would create the heavens and the earth in order to demonstrate for creation his attributes. And it's only through the covenant that he made within himself that the greatest demonstration of the majesty of God could ever be seen when he poured out his holy justice through his holy wrath on his Son in order to redeem the sons of Adam, the elect of God. And this is why Genesis ends with two funerals. Because both of these men died and were buried. We will all die and be buried. But is that the end of them? Is that the end of us? But both of these men knew what their only hope in life and death was. And again, listen to Hebrews 11 speaking of them. Faith. Faith is the thing, the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the men of old gained approval. Without faith it's impossible to please him. For he who draws near to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. By faith, Jacob as he was dying, blessed each of his sons of Joseph and worshiped, leaning on the top of his staff. And by faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the exodus of the sons of Israel and gave commands concerning his bones. And then at the end of chapter 11 of Hebrews, and all of these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive that was promised because God had provided something better for us so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. We're just like them. They died in faith, just like you and I will. And again, this is the truth given to us in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18, where Paul tells us, I don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, so that you won't grieve as the rest of those who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord, we will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the, in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. This chapter, the ending of this book, ends with us looking forward to the end of all things. It points toward the beginning of eternity as it directs our attention back to our only hope in life and death. 
And saints, we are meant to know that we must keep ourselves in the love of God. And exactly how we are to do that. Listen to Jude 1. But you, beloved, building yourself up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourself in the love of God. And there's that command. Keep yourself in the love of God. That kind of sounds like I'm my only hope in life and death. But only because we're not thinking. Jude said, But you, beloved, building yourself up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit. He's saying, you build yourself up. How? In the Holy Spirit. Yahweh is with you. And then we're given the command to keep ourselves in the love of God. And then we're told how we do this. Waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. You see, he's with us now. He's in us. And for this reason, we can keep ourselves in the love of God. This is our only hope now and in death. Because we are being prepared for eternity. But can we be sure that this is true? How do we know that this is true? Verses 24 and 25 of Jude 1. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory. Blameless. That's how you will stand in his presence. Blameless. With great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, might and authority before all time, now and forever. And here is our only hope in life and death. And here's why this book, the book of Genesis, ends with two funerals. Because they saw, they, they saw and they knew that the homecoming of these saints into the internal rest of him who they knew was a foregone conclusion. They mark the truth that they knew who their only hope in life and death is. The saints, we're meant to know this ourselves. And saints, let me tell you now, let me leave you with this. How you live your life. It proves who your only hope in life and death is. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all of your ways, acknowledge him. Saints, God is with you. Trust in your only hope in life and in death. Let's pray.